As we conclude our study in the book of Genesis, we find ourselves this week in the last portion of Genesis, portion Vayechi, which starts in chapter 47, verse 28, and goes right to the end of chapter 50. Now, I was just noticing here uh, just a moment ago that um, Genesis has 50 chapters, and Jacob's birth is recorded in chapter 25. That means the final 26 chapters of Genesis, more than half the book, is Jacob's life. And of course, Joseph's life's in there as well, but they're intermingled. But more than half the book of Genesis is about Jacob and his lifetime. And that's pretty amazing. And, and Jacob's name, of course, is changed to Israel. So um, we have a, a few chapters in the front of Genesis, which covers the creation and and the fall, and, and, um, and the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And it's like the Bible races through that to get us to Abraham. Then everything slows down. And we have the story of Abraham, and then a brief story of Isaac. And when we're just about to the midpoint of Genesis, Jacob is born. And then it slows down even more to cover his life. Jacob is an amazing person, and um, a puzzling one as well. And as we're going to see in this chapter, and hopefully we'll solve a couple of those puzzles as we go through. The passage starts out, chapter 47, verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, and the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. The time approached for Israel to die. Notice it says, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt, it was time for Israel to die. And then at the end, it also will go back and forth between the names Jacob and Israel. And it's not coincidental that Jacob lived 17 years in the land of Egypt. If you recall, earlier in the story of Joseph, Joseph was 17 when he left Jacob and was sent to go find his brothers. So for the first 17 years of Joseph's life, he lived under the care of his father Jacob. But in the last 17 years of Jacob's life, he lived under the care of his son, Joseph. It's a, it's a beautiful and poetic alignment there. So Jacob is about to die, and in chapter 48, it says, It came to pass after these things that someone said to Joseph, Behold, your father is ill. This is chapter 48, verse 1. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Jacob is told, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. So Israel exerted himself and sat upon the bed. Now, there's a puzzling verse here that always kind of bothered me, but I thought this time I'm really going to slow down and and take a close look at this. Verse 3, Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai appeared to me in Luz in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me. This is when Jacob was leaving his family and going to Laban's place to, and would meet uh, Rachel. He said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous. I will make you a congregation of nations, and I will give this land to your seed after you as an eternal possession. That word congregation of nations, that word congregation is the word kahal. And this is the third time that word has appeared in the book of Genesis. The first time is back in chapter 28, verse 3, which is the incident that Jacob's referring to. When he was leaving home, God appeared to him and said, I'll make of you a kahal 
of nations. Kahal is the word that we translate in Greek as ekklesia and in English as church. And then when Jacob was returning home, God appeared to him again and repeated this promise. And that's in chapter 35 and verse 11. So Jacob had held on to these promises of God that he would give this land to his seed after him for an eternal possession. Verse 5, And now your two sons, Jacob says to Joseph, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before my coming to you in Egypt shall be mine. In other words, your sons, instead of being my grandsons, I'm going to make them my sons. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, like Reuben and Simeon, my first two-born. My two firstborn, I should say. But progeny born to you after them shall be yours. They will be included under the name of their brothers with regard to their inheritance. But as for me, when I came... Now this is the verse. This is the verse I found puzzling. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Padan Aram, where he met Rachel at Laban's home, Rachel died on me in the land of Canaan on the road. Rachel died on me and the land of Canaan on the road. While there was still a stretch of land to go to Ephratah, and I buried her there on the road to Ephratah, which is Beit Lechem, Bethlehem. What does that have to do with anything? Why did he bring up Rachel's death at this point? Well, if you notice, I, I've called this passage, just in my own title I give it, A Song of Regrets and Hope. No, the entire Torah is written as a poem. And when you uh, read it in the Hebrew, it's got a lyrical form to it. It's, It's poetic, the way the entire thing is written. But some parts, such as this part we're getting to now, and as Jacob blesses his sons, it becomes extra lyrical. It becomes hyper lyrical and poetic. And so I refer to this portion as a song of regrets and hope because you do see regrets rearing their head in this portion. And this is one of them right here. So when he's getting ready to bless Joseph's sons, and he takes his two sons as his own, why does he refer to the fact that Rachel died on me on the way to Ephratah in the land of Canaan, there at Bethlehem? Here's the, the passage. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died on me. And there's the word Ephratah, which is uh, repeated. There is another way that passage, uh, Rachel died on me, can be translated. Rachel died on me is three words in Hebrew. The first one is meta. Meta means she died. The last word is Rachel, Rachel. We say Rachel in Hebrew. And the middle word is Ali, on me. So we would say, she died on me. Who? Rachel, Rachel did. And it's that middle word there, Ali, that I find interesting. Because Rachel died on me, says, well, I was on my way, she just up and died. She died on me. But that was not a Hebrew idiom at the time. A better translation, I believe, would be Rachel died 
on account of me. On account of me. She died because of me. Now, why would Jacob say that? And again, if I'm interpreting this correctly and translating it correctly, this is one of Jacob's deepest regrets because he loved Rachel with all his heart. He adored this girl. And yet, of the four wives he had, she may have been the youngest, but she was the first to die. And she died in the pain of childbirth, giving birth to Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. But why does Jacob say she died on account of me? Well, if you recall, going back again, when they were leaving Padan and they were departing from Laban's home, Rachel somehow snuck into the Laban's home and stole his teraphim, his idols, his gods. And she hid them in the saddlebags of the camel she was riding on. And then they all left. Well, when Laban realized that Jacob and his daughters and grandchildren and, and all of their cattle had, were on their way, that Jacob had just left, he became extremely angry. But then he also discovered that his, his gods, his idols, were missing. And so he, he rides and takes a couple days, but he catches up with Jacob, and they have a, a big argument And then Laban accuses Jacob of stealing his gods. And this made Jacob extremely angry. And so he told Laban, this is in chapter 31, verse 32. Jacob says to Laban, the one with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what is yours among my belongings and take it for yourself. For Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Jacob called down a curse on the one who stole Laban's idols, not realizing that it was Rachel who had done so. And as you recall the story, Laban searched through all of the the belongings and all the, the pack saddles and everything else in Jacob's camp. And when he came to Rachel, she was sitting down, leaning against the pack saddle and She says, oh, please don't make me move because it's that time of the month with me and I'm just so miserable. So he didn't search that pack saddle, which is the saddle that contained his idols. And then, of course, after they parted ways, Jacob, instead of going back home to his father Isaac, he went on north up to Shechem, bought some land there, settled there for a while, but... That did not turn out so well. His daughter, Dina, was raped by Shechem, the prince of the land. And, um, and Jacob's brother, uh, sons, Simeon and Levi, became so angry they went in and slaughtered the old town. And so it was just a miserable scene. And over this period of time, Rachel becomes pregnant, and she's almost ready to give birth. So we can assume that they spent at least a good nine months there in Shechem. And, uh, and on, while they're on their way back to Canaan, back down to where Isaac lives, um, they approached Bethlehem, the area of Ephratah, which means fruitful. And it was there she went into labor. And um, she gave birth to a son, and she called him Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. Remember, Judah had two sons, 
Uh, onan and er onan means sorrow. And this is a, a very similar word, benoni, son of my sorrow. But Jacob said, no, we're going to call him Benjamin. Benjamin means son of the right hand. And Rachel died and was buried right there by the road. If you go to Israel today, you can go to Bethlehem and right there at the foot of the, the mountain going up to the town is Rachel's tomb. And, uh, and people to this day go there to her tomb to pray, not to Rachel, but to God. But in the spirit of Rachel, when they have sorrows and have burdens, uh, women who want to conceive and have difficulty doing so, people who experience great loss, they often go to Rachel's tomb to pray. So it's uh, an interesting place to visit. I want to look at this word Ephratah for a moment. Ephratah has two possible meanings. Uh, those three middle letters, I want you to pay attention to those. Those three middle, three middle letters, parat, mean fruitful. That's where we get the word Ephraim, which means fruitfulness or fruitful. Uh, Euphrates comes from this. So parat or farat means fruitful. So we could say Ephratah means fruitfulness, and that is its primary meaning. Fruitfulness. But those first three letters are the word Ophar. And Ophar is the word for ash. Uh, dust is spelled in a similar way with a silent ion instead of a silent aleph. And, and so when someone puts dust and ashes on their head in their morning, it's Ophar va Ophar. So when we look at the first three letters, this word can be ash heap. Ephrata, fruitfulness or an ash heap. You talk about a contrast in meaning. But um, Rachel was looking at her life uh, to a degree as an ash heap. Though she was the last of Jacob's wives to finally become pregnant, to conceive and to bear a child, she had... Joseph, who was the 11th son, and then died giving birth to Benjamin, the 12th son. She called him son of my sorrow. And we assume it's because she was in such pain and grief knowing she was about to die. And that is probably the reason she did that. But another reason she may have called Benjamin Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, is because she realized she would have no more children. This would be it. She would have these two and no more. Jacob also, we can assume safely, that he wanted more children through Rachel. And this is probably the reason why he took Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and says, they're going to be mine, equal with all my other sons. They're going to be equal tribes in Israel. So instead of them being just my grandchildren, I'm going to make them children. Brothers to your brothers. Why? Because Rachel died on me in the land of Canaan on the road while there was still a stretch of land to go to Ephratah. And this would give context to this verse. So, Joseph, I want your two sons to become mine because my wife Rachel died on me and she could not have any more children. So, we're going to take your two sons as mine, 
as if they were born to my wife, Rachel. Does that make sense? You know, there's a, an interesting prophecy in Jeremiah that refers to Rachel weeping for her children. And this prophecy is quoted in the book of Matthew. This is what it says. Uh, it says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, remember uh, the Magi came to him and says, Where's the, this Messiah born? And Herod knew nothing about it, so he called the counselors in and says, where is the Messiah to be born? They said, in Bethlehem. And so Herod says, okay, go to Bethlehem. That's where you'll find him. And when you find him, come to me and tell me. Because Herod wanted to kill him. But an angel warned the Magi, don't go back to Herod. Go a different way home. So when Herod found out that he'd been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem, this is where Rachel's buried, and in all its environs, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, quote, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted, because they are not. That, interest, that, that phrase, and they are not, in Hebrew, is the word enenu. They don't exist. That's basically what it means. Most translations said because they are no more, but that is not exactly what it says. It just says because they don't exist. She's weeping for her children because they don't exist. And we understand this is because Herod, this, this hard-hearted, wicked, evil man, slew these infant children. You know, at Beth Takun, we've had several births. Just, uh, we've had two just within the last week or so. And we have uh, seven more on the way. And God has certainly blessed our congregation with new life. And it's, it's incredible and wonderful to watch all these beautiful little ones. But can you imagine what it would be like for all those two years old and younger, all the boys, just to be slaughtered for no purpose because the king is angry. I can imagine the sorrow. But Rachel is, war- is mourning, not because her children have been killed, because there are none. And it's almost echoing back to this idea that Rachel wanted more children, but there are none. They're gone. So... There's so much more we could say, but I want you to think about this. If Rachel had not stolen those idols, if Jacob, being ignorant of the the fact that she had, had not pronounced a curse, Rachel would have lived. Rachel would probably have had more children. But because of her sin, because of Jacob's curse, She died prematurely. And what could have been greater fruitfulness, one could almost say became an ash heap, because the name Ephratah can mean either one of those. This is one of the reasons I call this a song of regrets and hope. And you know, I think we all have regrets. I know I do. I look back on my life at things I... 
I've done or have failed to do and so wish I could go back and correct those and make them right, but I can't. And I never will be able to. What's done is done. And yet, there's great, great hope, wonderful hope, because God has a way of taking our past errors and turning them right side up and using them for good. And even though Rachel could not have any more children, it's like God gave Jacob this brilliant idea. Take Jacob's two children and elevate them to your own. And so this is why when we name the 12 tribes of Israel, we have Ephraim and Manasseh among the count. And I think God does the same. I know he does the same thing in our own lives. I want you to take time, if you, if you have to pause the teaching right here, and I want you to take your biggest regrets and regret them for one last time and then let them go. And trust that God, trust that God will somehow use them in a way you can't imagine to bring blessing to others and blessings to you. And that what you consider an ash heap would become something of fruitfulness. Because after all, ashes do become a great fertilizer if you want to grow fruitful plants. I want to share something from when Joseph was born, what Rachel said when she named him. It's in Genesis 30, 23 and 24, and I wish I had put it here so you could see it on the screen. But here's what she said. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she named him Joseph, Yosef, saying, may Adonai add to me another son. Now, in Hebrew, this makes a lot more sense. Because the root of the word Joseph, Yosef, is the word Asaf. And it's used three times in this one sentence, or this one verse. So let's read it again and put the Hebrew words in. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has Asaf my reproach. And she named him Yosef, saying, May Adonai Yosef to me another son. Now we usually translate the name Joseph as to add, and it can mean that, but it means more strictly to gather together, to gather. And so when she gives birth, she says, God has gathered up my reproach and taken it away. Now who's Joseph a picture of? He's a picture of Yeshua. And again, I say this over and over, there's no character in the Torah or the Tanakh whose life more closely parallels that of Yeshua than the life of Joseph. And no wonder he was called Yeshua ben Yosef because Mary's husband was named Joseph. And so when Joseph is born, his name is based on the fact that he has gathered away Rachel's reproach. And you know what? When Yeshua came, he came to gather away our reproach, to gather away our guilt and our sin and our regrets, to gather them away. So she named him Yosef, based on this word Asaf. But then she uses it again, saying, May Adonai Yosef gather to me another son. May he add to me another son in addition to this one. And Benjamin is the fulfillment of that. 
But let's think of Yeshua again. Yeshua accomplished two great things. He gathered away our sin and our guilt, but then he gathers to us great fruitfulness. He adds to us so many wonderful things, his gifts, the fruit of his spirit, and community, and and so many blessings. We just can't even begin to number them. So Joseph's name is used in these two ways. It's based on these two things, gathering away her reproach, but gathering to her blessings and fruitfulness. And Benjamin, Benjamin, it was physical proof that God was going to gather to her, to add to her something more. Well, you know, as we, as we come up to chapter 49, um, it's so tempting to go through all 12 of the blessings over each of, uh, the blessings over each of Jacob's sons, but you know, I've done this before more than once, and I encourage you, if you haven't, or if you need to review, go back to the teaching I did in the Torah project, the teaching I did on chapter 49, where I go through each of the sons, we go through each of the prophecies, because these are prophetic words Jacob's pronouncing over each of his sons, and, and look at them. And at the end of Moses' life, Moses also blessed the 12 tribes, and there are definite similarities and differences between what Moses pronounced in Deuteronomy 33 and what Jacob pronounces here in Genesis 49. So if we, I'm just going to look at a, a few of these. We're really going to focus on Joseph, though, because he's been our, our primary concern as we go through these final chapters of, of Genesis. But chapter 49, verse 1 says, Then Jacob called for his sons and said, Assemble yourselves. And I will tell you what will uh, befall you in the uh, Achrim Hayamim, the after days, the latter days, the end of days. Gather yourselves and listen, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. And again, there you see Jacob and Israel, the names being matched up and paired. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my strength and my initial vigor. Foremost in rank, foremost in power, but unstable as water. You cannot be foremost because you mounted your father's bed. Then you desecrated him who ascended my couch. That certainly doesn't sound like a blessing. But then it doesn't say he called them together to bless them. He assembled them to tell them what would befall them in the end of days. But if you go to the end of the chapter, near the end, and you look at verse 28, when he's done speaking over his 12 sons, it says, all these are the tribes of Israel, 12. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. Each according to his appropriate blessing, he blessed them. So here's a problem. What Jacob says to Reuben is a blessing. But it sure doesn't sound like one. I mean, can you imagine if your elderly father is about to die and he calls you, you're the oldest, and he calls your younger brothers and sisters to come around the bed and he wants to to speak to you. And he starts with you, the oldest. And he says, when you were born, we had such high hopes for you. You had everything going for you, but you really did mess it up big time. And he dies. 
what, what kind of blessing is that? But that's basically what he's saying to Reuben. In fact, when he says foremost in rank and foremost in power, the rabbis have interpreted that, that foremost in rank is a reference to priesthood, that Reuben's tribe should have been the priest. And foremost in power is a reference to kingship, that Reuben's tribe should have been the tribe of the kings. The priest and the kings should have come from Reuben, but they didn't. In fact, we discover later that the kings will come through Judah and the priests will come through Levi. Reuben just really messed up. What regrets he must have had. What regrets? But the question is, how can these words of Jacob in any way be construed as a blessing? In fact, how can the words of criticism anyone speaks to you be considered a blessing? Because you know I've had people speak very negative to me over my life, just as you have, uh, I'm assuming. And sometimes those words come from somebody who just doesn't like you at all, they despise you. Sometimes those words of criticism come from someone who really loves you. And there's no question, Jacob loved Reuben. But how is that a blessing? It's something worth thinking about and figuring out. So he blesses Reuben. And then in verse 5, up comes Simeon and Levi. He says, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their weaponry is a stolen craft. Into their conspiracy may my soul not enter. With their congregation do not join, O oh my honor. For in their rage they murdered people. And at their whim they hamstrung an ox. Accursed is their rage, for it is intense in their wrath, for it is harsh. I will separate them within Jacob, and I will disperse them in Israel. Again, I don't see any words of blessing there. <coughs> Excuse me. In fact, they're very strong words of criticism for their anger and the fact that they had murdered. What is Jacob referring to? Of course, he's referring to how Simeon and Levi teamed up to slay the people of Shechem, the men of Shechem, back in the incident with Dina, their sister. And sure enough, neither of them received an inheritance in Israel. They were scattered. But later on, in the book of Exodus, Levi redeems himself. Because at the incident of the golden calf, Levi was the one tribe that did not participate. And because of that, God, through Moses, elevated them to be the priestly pride. Their regret was turned on its head and became a great hope and a great promotion to them. And as the priestly tribe, they did not receive a, a territory of inheritance, but they, they were given cities scattered throughout the land of Israel, these Levitical cities. Simeon, on the other hand, he didn't turn out quite as well. His inheritance was in the inheritance of Judah. He just lived in various towns and pockets throughout Judah's territory. Judah's the kingly tribe, and it's almost as if God decided you need to have a strong authority watching over you because you're dangerous. You're a bloodthirsty kind of a people. And so we're going to break you up and put you in Judah, and we're going to keep a close watch on you. 
But then there's the, the blessing of Judah in v- verse 8. Judah, now this turns very positive. You, your brother, shall praise. Your hand will be at your enemy's nape. Your father's sons will prostrate themselves to you. A lion cub is Judah. From the prey, my son, you elevated yourself. And then in verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a scholar from among his descendants, until Shiloh arrives. Shiloh has always been understood as a a prophecy and a reference to the Mashiach, to Messiah. In fact, the Hebrew name Shiloh and the, the word Mashiach, Messiah, both have a numerical value of 358. They're identical. And sure enough, Yeshua, our Messiah, came through the tribe of Judah, the tribe in, through which the kings of Israel came. And it goes on to Zebulun and Issachar, and there's Dan, and then Gad, and Asher, Naphtali, and then verse 22. Now, what we're going to do is, uh, I've always wanted to do this, but never have, but we're just going to dive right in over our heads into the deep end of the pool. And you've often heard me say you just can't translate Hebrew into English. You just can't do it. You, every translation is an approximation of the Greek and Hebrew. And some verses are easier to approximate in English, but others are impossible. And we're going to look at verse 22 just to give you an idea and a taste for what it's like to try to be a translator of the Hebrew Scriptures. And you're going to see very quickly, it just can't be done. It just can't be done. Let's look at a few translations of this verse. Now, in the English Standard Version, which I tend to use, I use the uh, New American Standard or the English Standard, and I find myself edging more and more to the ESV. But this is how they translate this verse. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough or a branch by a spring. His branches run over the wall. And this is how the stone Komish, which is what I normally use when I'm teaching from the Torah. It's published by Art Scroll. And it says this, A charming son is Joseph, a charming son to the eye. Each of the girls climbed heights to gaze. Okay, just look at those two translations for a moment. The first says he's a fruitful bough, fruitful branch. The other says he's a charming son. One says it's a bough by a spring. The other says it's a charming son to the eye. His branches run over the wall, but the other says each of the girls climbed heights to gaze. See the problem? Well, let's try another one. Here's Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch. Whenever I really want to understand a Hebrew word, I go to Hirsch. He lived in the uh, 1800s. And this is how he translates the verse. Yosef, a noble, outstanding son, a noble, outstanding son already at the source. Daughters, she too stepped over the wall. Which makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And then here's the Jewish Publication Society. Now, if you look at the the original JPS translation, it's very different from the new Jewish Publication Society translation, the NJPS. This is what it has. Joseph is a wild donkey, a wild donkey by a spring, wild colts on a hillside, which I, to me, is a horrible translation. So let's just get rid of that. Okay? 
So how do you come up with everything from being a fruitful bough to a charming son, a noble outstanding son, and a wild donkey? And these are all translators who know Hebrew. These are all translators who love the word. These are all translators who are really trying to do the best job they can. And yet look how it is all over the map. Now to be fair, I'm taking a verse here that's extremely difficult. And let's look at it. Let's figure out what the difficulties are. There is the verse in English. or I'm sorry, in Hebrew. So let's just start by analyzing this a little bit. Now, do you recognize these three letters here? Pei, Resh, Tav. And they're repeated again right here. If we go back to the word Ephrata, notice that the three middle letters are the same. They're the letters that mean fruitful. Porat. Okay? So those are the same three letters used in this verse. And I choose to translate them as fruitful. So the first word, ben, means son. And ben here again means son. So we would say ben porat, a fruitful son. Yosef is Joseph. Ben porat, a fruitful son. So you can hear the kind of the rhyme going on. But what's interesting is that this kind of forms a menorah, doesn't it? You've got Ben Parat here, you've got Ben Parat here, and right in the middle you've got Joseph. You've got a menorah. A fruitful son is Joseph, a fruitful son. Now maybe I'm reading way more into this than I should, but you can take it or leave it. I don't mind. But I do know that Yeshua will come at two times. He's come once, and he's going to come again. And both times he's fruitful. Fruitful in different ways, though. First time he, was, he came, it was incognito. He uh, did not come in, in glory, riding on a horse, coming out of the sky and defeating Israel's enemies and setting up the kingdom. But he came in glory into individual hearts. He established his kingdom in individuals. And these individuals, if you go back to the book of Acts, were extremely fruitful because of Messiah living in their hearts and God's spirit coming into them and bearing incredible fruit throughout the world. And when he comes again, when he returns, it's going to be very fruitful. He's going to establish his kingdom and every eye will see him. And every every eye will see, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow, and they'll acknowledge that he is our master to the glory of God. And it's going to be a time of great physical fruitfulness in the world. But in between, we've got the humble Yeshua who is pictured by Yosef. That is the Yeshua that we recognize now, but he's coming back as a king. So anyways, again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but you know what? If I'm reading too much in it, I know on the other hand, there's so much we're missing as well. So we have Ben Porat, a fruitful son. Now here's the problem. Let me get rid of this little, little doodad here. Okay. There we go. 
This word, this first word, ben, is almost always translated son. Like Benoni, son of my sorrow, Benjamin, son of the right hand. But when a, if you have a tree and the tree has branches going out, those branches which come from the parent trunk are also called ben, a branch. So it can be translated branch. Branches can also be called daughters because they also come out of the trunk. And down here we have the word banot. The first word of the second line is usually translated daughters because it's a feminine word, but it can also mean branches. Parat means fruitful. But there are some rabbis, and others really, really argue with them about this. They say this actually comes from a word that means a donkey, a wild donkey. And that's where the new JPS gets theirs. But it's, it's a stretch. It really is a, a stretch linguistically, so I don't like that. We're not going to go with that one. And, of course, we have Joseph here, and, and then Ben-Porat, and then it says, Oli Ain. There's the word Ain. The word right before it, Oli, means to go over. And so here we see Oli Ain. And notice at the very end of the verse, we have Oli Shur. All right? So we have the same word both places. And that means to go over. Now, the word Ain means I. We, in fact, the first letter of this word is the word Ain, which means an I. And it's supposed to represent two eyes, and there's the, the mouth, okay? So this word, ein, means I. But, you always knew there was a but coming, didn't you? But it can also mean well or spring. I'll just put the word well here. And when you see names of places on an Israeli map, like En Gedi, in is the word ein. It means the well or the spring at Gedi. Uh, there's an in Eglion. Um, it means the well at Eglion or the spring at Eglion. Remember the witch of Endor? Two words, in, spring, of door. And uh, so when you see Hebrew names uh, of places with an E-N or an E-I in the beginning, there's a well or a spring there. Um, why would God ordain for the same word to mean I and to mean a well? Well, well, there's no play on words there. I, was, I did not mean to make a pun. Uh, but when you, when you see a spring or a well, what is happening are the things in the depths are coming to the surface where they are accessible. And that's what your eye does. We say that the eye is the window of the soul. Because when you look in someone's eyes you can kind of tell what's in the depths. And when John looked into the eyes of Messiah there on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation, he says his eyes were flames of fire because our God is a consuming fire and fire always represents holiness, purity, and light. So you can translate that eye or translate it well. Okay, down the second line, we've already seen banot can mean uh, daughters or branches, and then this second word, za'ada, means 
It's easier. It means to march, to march, or to stride. It's a very purposeful kind of walking. And then, oli shore, over the shore. The sh- now, uh, in our translations, there's a dot in the middle of the vav, and that means a wall. But if the dot is over the top of the vav, it means an ox. And since Torah scrolls have no dots and dashes and, and, uh, and vowel points, we can translate it wall or ox. You begin to see the problem? So you can have branches, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, fruitful branches going over the eyes or going over the wall and uh, over the well, and then you can have daughters marching to the ox or branches going over the wall. It's, what do you do? So what you have to do is try to do the best you can. But this is why I say again and again and again, Every translation is a commentary. And every translation is an approximation of the original. And there's no way to get it perfect. So, whenever you read your Bibles in English, have a little skepticism as to what it's saying. Because only in the original Hebrew and Greek can we really know. And this is why we need to learn to do Word studies. Uh, by the way, a little plug, I've been doing a series with uh, a number of folks from Beth Takoon. Uh, it's a series on how to study the Bible. We've done two sessions so far. They're both on YouTube, and the, notes, the link to the notes is also there. <clears throat> Excuse me. And one of the sessions coming up, probably the fourth session, will be how to do a word study. And so that's something you might want to watch for. It'll come up probably sometime late January or February. I'm spacing these out uh, several weeks apart and just and kind of uh, uh, shuffling them in between other things I have to do. So hopefully this is giving you a little idea of how confusing it can be to translate the scriptures. But I'm sure hoping I don't confuse you by doing this. I just want you to appreciate the difficulties. As far as I am concerned, the best translation of this passage is probably the first one, the ESV. Joseph is a fruitful bough, or fruitful son. Both are true, aren't they? A fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. When we think of this in terms of Joseph, his branches grew. He's very fruitful. I mean, look what he did for Egypt, how he basically was a savior of the world at that time during this time of uh, worldwide famine. But think of Yeshua. There were walls around Israel. There were walls around the theology, around Judaism, around the people. They were self-protective. But, but what does Yeshua do? When he was rejected by the leaders of Israel at that time, you could say his branches went right over the wall, right over the wall to us, to the Gentiles, so we could partake of the fruitfulness of this fruitful son. And I'm so glad that his branches went over the wall. His branches also are by a spring. 
because it's in him we find living water, like the woman at the well, who also was a Gentile. And when we look at the Samaritan woman, he talks to her about digging out her well so the springs of living water can come through her. So we find through our Messiah, who went outside of the Jewish people, his branches went over the wall. We receive of his fruit, and we receive of his living water. It's a beautiful picture. Is he a fruitful son? Yes. Is he a fruitful branch? Absolutely. And do the girls, the maidens, come to gaze? Do the maidens come to see? Well, would you think of him as being the groom, and we are the bride? And there are several places where we are compared to the bride who's in love with the groom and so makes her way to him. You can see how that translation is not amiss. Almost every word of Scripture has two meanings and they're both right. Just like Ephratah can be an ash heap, but it can also be a place of great fruitfulness. They're both right. And your ash heap can become fruitful as well. All right, we need to move on. I have a timer over here. It tells me uh, how much time has passed, and it's stuck. So according to it, I still have an hour. So uh, that works for me. (laughs) So let's take Joseph, uh, the prophecy over Joseph, and walk through it a bit. So we looked at verse 22. We're not going to take this much time on the rest of the verses by any stretch. So verse 23. This is another difficult passage, but the best translation I know of is this. And I had to pencil it in in my Bible. The archers dealt bitterly with him, shot at him, and hated him. They dealt bitterly with him, shot at him, and hated him. Now, there's no story of archers shooting at Joseph. But arrows, the arrows of archers often have to do with words, with speech, because we know that the enemy who hates us uh, shoots his fiery arrows at us. And how does he do that? Through the poison of his speech, the poison of his words, through his lies. So his brothers dealt bitterly with him, shot at him with their words, and they hated him. But his bow, Joseph's bow, was firmly placed and his arms were agile. And the hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there shepherds the stone of Israel. This is a difficult verse, but it's a a beautiful one. So let's uh, take a look at it. And this is the way I translate it. But his bow abides firm, and agile are the arms of his hands. Now think about that. That sounds very contradictory. This is one of the difficulties with translating this. His bow is firm. He's holding his bow with a rock-steady grip. But then it says his arms are agile. It's moving everywhere. Well, which is it? The answer is it's both. Well, what does it get a picture here? It's a beautiful word picture being painted. And it conjures up a picture of battle. And you can picture Joseph as a warrior in a chariot. The chariot's moving. And he has a target over here he wants to hit. So his bow is locked into his grip. But as the chariot moves, his arm has to be agile to move and follow that target. Because the target might be moving as well. So he needs a steady grip, 
but he also needs to be agile. I think of Yeshua. People are always throwing things at him, trying to trip him up with a question, with a comment, trying to trying their best to uh, to get him to trip over his own feet and make a mistake, and he never did. His bow was always firm, but he was agile. No matter what they brought his way, he was able to come back with exactly the right word of truth. And when he was being crucified, he still kept his bow firmly locked on the mark. And Hebrews tell us, tells us that uh, who for the joy that was set before him, that was the target, he endured the cross. And he just kind of laughed at the shame, just despised it, threw it behind his back. Wasn't going to let it affect him. We need to learn to keep our eye on the mark. Because this world is shaking like crazy. But you know what? You have to keep your eye on the mark. When I was learning how to drive a car as a teenager, one of the best pieces of advice I got was this. You know, when you first start driving, you're looking at the lines. You want to stay between the lines. You're always doing this. And every time a car comes down to the other side of the road, you feel like it's trying to, to hit you or run you off the road. And the advice was this. Quit looking at the lines. But look ahead where you're going and steer toward that. And the moment I started to do that, I started driving straight. I wasn't doing this all the time. And that's good advice for life. Keep your eye on the mark. Our goal is Messiah. Our goal is the day of judgment when we stand face to face to him, with him. And, and we want to steer our lives toward the mark. Okay. And then there's a, a fascinating phrase there. Now, it, your English translation, I'll be willing to bet, uses the word hands one time. But in the Hebrew, the word hands appears twice. And it's interesting the way it is. And it's also why it's difficult to translate. And I put it this way, but his bow abides firm and agile are the arms of his hands by the hands of the mighty one. In Hebrew, it's worded like this. Yadoiv, Yad is a hand. Yadoiv means his hands. Midei, of the hands, Avir Yaakov, the mighty one of Jacob. His hands, from the hands, or of the hands, or like the hands, or something to do with the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. It's almost as if God is giving us a glimpse here that the hands of Joseph are the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. And when we look at Joseph's actions, we see the actions of God. We see Joseph's hands guided by the hand of God. And when we look at Yeshua, the hand of God, everything he did was an act of God. His hands were like watching the hands of God. His words were the words of God. His expressions, his deeds, everything about him was God expressing himself through a human being, through human flesh. It's a powerful image. It only comes through in the Hebrew. Uh, the arms of his hands by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I love that. It's referring to 
Joseph as the shepherd because he shepherded his brothers, he shepherded Egypt, he shepherded the peoples. And he was the stone of Israel, the foundation upon which their salvation was built. And that word for stone is the word Evan. That's where we get our word ebony, because ebony is the second densest wood, and it's so dense it doesn't, doesn't even float. And ebony is what they made the black keys on pianos out of long ago. But this is also the stone that's called the stone of stumbling later in the prophets. Why is an Evan a stone of stumbling? Well, if you look at the first two letters, and many of you have seen me do this before, the first two letters of Evan spell the word Av, which is the word Father. Av, Father. We get Abba from that. But the second and third letters of this word, and you should recognize these by now, are the word ben, like uh, ben porat, a fruitful son. Ben means son. And the reason the stone of Israel, Messiah, is a stumbling stone is because he represents the fact that the father and son are one. They couldn't take that. That was the problem. And even with many of the Jewish people today, the stumbling stone is the fact that Messiah is the Son of God. And they have a hard time wrapping their minds around his divinity. The fact that God was in him, God was expressing himself, and that he was sinless. He was a human being, but when we heard him speak, it was God we heard speak. When we saw him act, it was God we saw acting through human flesh. He, as a human being, bore perfectly the impression and the character of God himself. It's, a, it's an amazing concept, but that the Father and the Son are one, that becomes the Evan, the stone of stumbling. Well, let's finish up Joseph, and then we'll close. Verse 25, that was from the God of your father, and he will help you. And with Shaddai, and he will, now notice this, he will bless you with blessings of heaven from above, blessings of the deep crouching below, blessing of the bosom and womb, the blessings of your father surpass the blessings of my parents of the endless bounds of the world's hills. Let them be upon Joseph's head and upon the head of the withdrawn from his brothers, the one exiled from his brothers. When you read through these 12 blessings that Jacob pronounced over his sons, you don't see the word blessing in any of the names. There's the word blessing or blessed does not appear in any of the prophecies except Joseph's. And there it appears six times. It's almost like God is telling us all the sons of Jacob were incredibly blessed. But those blessings all came through Joseph. And we could say today, Israel is blessed. All of us are blessed. The world is blessed. But all the blessings in this world and in your life and in my life 
They come through Yeshua. They all do, whether you know it or not. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, but it comes through Yeshua, His Son. Benjamin, Joseph's little brother, gets one verse, and it's worth mentioning. Verse 27, Benjamin is a predatory wolf, and the morning he will devour prey, and the evening he will distribute spoils. Doesn't sound very complimentary, does it? But some messianic commentators say that the reference to in the morning he will devour prey is a reference to Saul, who was the first king. All the other kings came from Judah, but the first king, Saul, came from Benjamin. And Saul didn't turn out too well. So in the morning, he will devour prey. And then the evening, and they say that might be a reference to Paul, because the apostle Paul, whose name was Saul, also came from the tribe of Benjamin. But he did better. Saul started off strong, but he became an enemy of David. Saul of Tarsus started off as an enemy of the son of David, but became strong. And uh, he kind of completed the error and brought it, uh, the, the regret and error of the first Saul, and fulfilled it and made it fruitful through, uh, God made him fruitful through the Saul of Tarsus, the Saul of the book of Acts and of the New Testament scriptures. But I think there's a more profound and, and uh, more immediate meaning to this. And that's this. It was through Joseph that God brought so many blessings to Israel, but the temple, God's house, was located in Jerusalem, which is in Benjamin's territory. The temple was in Benjamin's territory. God made his home with Benjamin, which meant the altar was in Benjamin's territory. And in the morning, there would be sacrifices. The altar is called a, a wolf, and it consumes meat. And, but not all the meat was consumed on the altar. Some of the pieces were then distributed in the evening. And when the priests went home, they took the sacrificial meat and it'd be eaten by the families and other people there in the temple. So it's also a reference to the fact that God makes his presence, his home there in Benjamin's territory, Joseph's little brother. And that's where the altar was and where the meat was consumed. Well, there's so much more we could say on this passage, but I guess I took this passage selfishly to look at and try to answer some of the questions I've had, but never had the time to really solve and ponder. And um, so if you didn't get much out of this, thank you for indulging me and let me take some time to, to, um, to, to fiddle with some of these verses and try to uh, pull some meaning out of it to satisfy my own questions that I had. So your questions for discussion. Rachel and Jacob grieved over what could have been. Do you think this is appropriate? Two, how could Jacob's words to Reuben possibly be considered a blessing? Three, when it came time for Moses to die, he too pronounced blessings over the 12 tribes. That's in Deuteronomy 33. So I suggest you take time to read through the section that describes Joseph. If you go to Deuteronomy 33, verses 13 to 17, talk about the blessings to Joseph and compare it with Jacob's blessings of Joseph. And then here's a fun one. Don't cheat. And if you're studying this in, in your home group, great. Do this as a group. Close your Bible, and then from memory, 
reconstruct an outline of the major events in the book of Genesis. See if you can do this. It's important you be able to do this. And uh, then go back, open your Bibles, you're going to check, see what you did. What did you leave out? What major events did you forget about? What things did you get out of order? And uh, so have some fun with this. If you have a whiteboard or somebody to take notes, uh, discuss it and try to get the stories in order and then come back and check how you did. So let's close in prayer. Oh, one last thing. In the notes section, I listed uh, 57 parallels between Joseph and Yeshua. There are more, but here's a list of 57 that I put together so you can go and take a look and see if you can find the passages that support these. Now let's pray. Our Father, our King, thank you so much for your amazing word. Thank you for this this transcendent language of Hebrew, this extraterrestrial language through which you've given us your light of truth. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to make better, become better students and to commit ourselves to unlocking the things you've hidden there for our discovery. So open our eyes that we may behold wonders from your Torah and we'll give you great glory for it in Yeshua's name. Amen.